if you're going to take this journey, you have to be 100% sold on the journey. If you have a plan B, you can guarantee you will be in your plan B. It's got to be there's plan A and it's plan A, B, N, C, D, E, and F. It's all that plan. If you have a backup plan, if your entrepreneurial strategy fails, you're going to fail. You got to be all in. Because if you have one foot or even a pinky toe out the door, you're not going to succeed. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friends, and welcome to the 82nd episode of the Business for Good podcast. Before we get on to this episode, I want to thank those of you who offered feedback on our last episode with Doug Evans of Juicero. Some of you wrote in just to say that Doug's now got you on the sprouting train, while others said you were inspired by his perseverance, even in the face of such trying circumstances in his life. I know I certainly feel that way for sure myself on both of those counts, actually. So if you didn't yet listen to episode 81 with Doug Evans, I do recommend going back and checking it out. Now, as you know, you can get a shout out on this show if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts for us for the Business for Good podcast. So let me say thanks to Hector for writing in and with a review. Hector says, quote, every time I tune in, this is a really good show. It's how everything is put together from subject matter and how it's put together show to show. It's really great. Really recommend. Well, thank you, Hector. And to the rest of you, please feel free to leave your own Apple review too. It will be much appreciated. Now on to episode 82. You know when you get a food product and instead of plastic, it's in one of those biodegradable bowls or trays? Have you ever wondered how they do that? I mean, the bowl needs to repel oil and water from its surface without getting soggy, but it still needs to be actually biodegradable. Seems impossible. Well, it turns out that this feat isn't only a great technological innovation that helps to reduce plastics, especially single-use plastics, it's also a great business, as Troy Swope has now proven. Sometimes life just doesn't unfold in the ways that you expect it will. It certainly didn't for Troy, who spent 15 years making semiconductors for Intel as an engineer, only to become obsessed with making biodegradable packaging. Troy calls himself an accidental environmentalist, but his journey has been far more methodical than accidental. After leaving Intel, he founded Footprint, a B2B company seeking to help other companies move away from single-use plastics. Founded in 2014, the company grew from humble roots to now having 4,000 employees, $50 million in annual revenue, and production facilities around the world. Beyond Meat uses their biodegradable trays for its sausage links. ConAgra uses them for its healthy choice line of frozen dinners. And Sweetgreen uses them for their fast casual salad offerings too. With all of this success, the company is seeking now to go public later in 2022, reportedly with a valuation of $1.6 billion. It's quite a story, and one that proves that some of humanity's most pressing problems, like plastic pollution, may just be some of our best business opportunities too. I hope you enjoy Troy Swope's story as much as I did. Troy, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Oh, Paul, thanks for having me. Hey, it is awesome to be talking with you. I'm really looking forward to it. You know, I learned about you because I was talking with my wife about our Beyond Meat sausages. And I said, you know, it's pretty cool that they have this tray in here that isn't plastic. And I didn't know what it was made out of. And I thought, what is this? Um, It seemed pretty interesting. And so I started Googling around to see what their plastic alternative, what that tray is made out of. And indeed, it's made by you. And that led me down this whole rabbit hole to see more about Footprint. And I was so impressed that I just 
knew we had to get you on the show and talk to you. So first, congrats on being associated and, and providing a product for Beyond Meat. That's pretty awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're very proud of that. We're very proud of Beyond Meat. We're very proud of all our customers, frankly. Indeed. Well, I want to get there. But before we do, you've been at this now at this company for about seven years or so, maybe a little bit more. But you were not always the guy who made trays and bowls and cups. You were one time working as an engineer at Intel. So what made you think, you know, doing semiconductors, I should start making bowls? Well, it's kind of an interesting story. And frankly, and I, I think I've trademarked this, or if I haven't, I, I will. I'm an accidental environmentalist, Paul. So when I was working at Intel, I worked in R&D for 15 years. So did our co-founder, Yoke Chung. In the last eight years at Intel, I ran a materials organization. And one of the projects we were working on was actually Intel's products was getting contaminated in shipping. And what we found out is actually plastic through plastic outgassing. So the best way to describe outgassing is your new car smell. When you open up a new car and you smell that, that's all plastics and glues and, and maybe even leathers that are outgassing. And some of it could be in, in high levels toxic. But what we were finding is a very short shipment time from Japan to Intel's facilities across the globe. We were getting contamination and then Intel would have to clean the product, clean this contamination off. And as we were investigating that contamination, we, you know, we're going... Well, man, everything in a supermarket's in plastic. Is there the same phenols and phthalates and this contamination on food? So I know it's a pretty, probably a pretty big no-no, but uh, we started taking food product into Intel's lab in Santa Clara, California, and just saying, hey, can you test this to see on these pineapple spears or this macaroni and cheese, or is there contamination? And the, the data was alarming. And this is 2004, 2005 timeframe. So you're still at Intel and you're taking pineapple spears into the lab. I mean, just a curious engineer and going, you know, is there the same contamination? And lo and behold, there is. And there's great data that came out. Rolling Stone came out with an article, I think, in 2019 that says we eat a credit card's worth of plastic a week. And then Bloomberg, I think this year, this last year in 2021, came out and kind of validated that, yeah, we're eating about five to six grams of, of plastic a week. And it through a lot of it is most of it through plastic outgassing and contamination is it stores your food, it's leaching onto your food, and then you ultimately eat it. And as a father and the father of, of four, I just couldn't get over it. And so I started grabbing really smart people at Intel and said, hey, we got to go develop a technology that eliminates plastic and gets plastic away from food. And there's some key indicators. If you're going to pull somebody from Intel, a really good engineer or scientist from Intel, one, the challenge has got to be really hard. It's got to be a really big opportunity, right? Intel thought in massive billions of you know dollars or billions of units, and it had to be a real compelling you know story and, and a win for the environment uh, to get people to leave Intel. And we were fortunate enough that we were able to rally up a good crew of engineers and scientists that took a completely fresh approach at the problem and said, "Okay, let's go develop an alternative." So, Troy, were you viewed negatively then by your colleagues at Intel? I mean, you're basically sitting there saying, "I need to go figure out some way to poach other Intel people to leave the company." How was that viewed? You know, I'm sure that there's probably some people that viewed it negatively. Frankly, Intel in the '90s and early 2000s had so much talent, and I was fortunate enough to. I was recently at a summit for Goldman Sachs in the Bay Area. And I actually ran into other former Intel engineers and scientists that own their own companies and were doing some amazing things. And we started talking about it and we're just going, Intel just had so much talent in the late 90s, early 2000s that they didn't know what to do with all that talent. And so 
I think of Intel more of a, a university or a college in that time frame that taught all these people how to design of experiments, how to innovate, how to innovate quickly, how to fail, how to learn from failure, and gave us a great launching pad to go have huge impact on the earth. I am so thankful for Intel and that environment and the unbelievably talented, very smart people that surrounded me every day really is where I grew up. And did you have entrepreneurial experience prior to starting this company? Or were you just working on semiconductors and you thought, in addition to engineering some pretty cool plastic alternatives, I think I'll also be a CEO? Well, based on your podcast, I think you know this, that entrepreneurs, it's in their blood. And so regardless of what your journey is, it never quite leaves you, right? So I think I always had this itch inside of me that I wanted to tackle a problem, give back and control my own destiny. And I think that's the the real thing about entrepreneurs and great entrepreneurs is that they want to be in control of their own destiny. And I wanted to have greater c- control of my own destiny. And I wanted to have a, a huge impact on the planet. I was so proud of the work that we did at Intel, especially in the 90s. And, but I wanted to go out and create my own team, my own product. And once I saw what we could do for the planet, and we were really premature before everybody else saw the issues. But once I saw that this was going to be a huge human health crisis, forget pollution, this is a human health crisis. I just couldn't let go of the opportunity. So you saw an opportunity. You saw an opportunity not only to start a business, but to do good in the world through that business. But where'd you get the money for this? I mean, you're talking about bringing on really great talent from Intel. That's not cheap. Did you self-fund this? Did you go to VCs? Like, How did you actually get this thing started? We built the business plan. And then we went out and just started selling and said, hey, this is what we're going to do. And we had a brief stop where we had a... A material supplier at Intel that kind of was a distributor, and we pitched it to them. They liked the idea, and we, we started it there, and we had a lot of success. But we were replacing plastic packaging for consumer electronics guys we knew, like Apple, HP, Dell. And, but the vision never aligned with that company. So we we knew we had to get into food, and we had to build manufacturing near shore. So ultimately, we we separated ties. And there's a key learning for your entrepreneurs that are listening. I took the first money I could get when we left, and that was the bad decision. So we left that brief stop as a company called Unisource Global Solutions. We met the founders of Sprouts, or the founder of Sprouts, Kevin Eastler, Sprouts Supermarkets. And Kevin had just taken Sprouts public and had a vision similar to ours that, you know, as he was, you know, built this healthy supermarket chain, wildly successful. He always knew plastic was a problem and the waste of plastic was a problem. And it contradicted what he was trying to deliver to his customers. So when we met him, it was a match made in heaven. And it's probably who I should have started with, if, you know, key learning as an entrepreneur. And so he was our first funding and funded us for a great deal of time for the first five years of the business. So all of their money came from one person for five years. He started a family office called Zinfinity Capital. But yeah, first five years all came from Kevin. So a very small cap table for five years there. Correct. We spend a good fair amount of money. Not a small amount of dollars, but a small cap, small number of... Uh... Correct. Yeah. It, it was Kevin and, and me and my co-founder for quite some time. Wow. So what were you doing? Like, you know, so he's funding this thing, but then you have to actually figure out how to make bowls and cups that are both going to be suitable for food production and food storage, but are going to be biodegradable. So what were you doing? Like, were you testing a lot of different materials? Like, what was the actual process of creating your prototype here? We were failing a lot, right? But like I said, you know, Intel taught us how to fail. So we found a customer in ConAgra, which is, you know, healthy choice, power bowls, 
Frontier Brands, P.F. Chang's, a phenomenal leadership team, unbelievable leadership team. In, in fact, today I'm still amazed by how much talent they have in their company. But they had a vision early on before you know a lot of other companies do today. When we're seeing a lot of customers now clearly have a vision to eliminate plastic. But ConAgra saw it early and they saw that in the frozen food section that millennials and Gen Zs weren't going to microwave plastic. And this was a real concern for them, and, and they dominate the frozen food space. And so we heard them speaking at a conference many, many years ago. And so we went to them and basically said, we're your guys, <laughs> this team of four, right? To this big multi-billion dollar CPG. And luckily, they believed us, right? And we told them that we knew how to design experiments, we knew how to fail, and we were going to develop a solution. And we started out with, we were a coatings company. We developed an amazing coating technology, bio-based coating technology. But ultimately, we couldn't get over the waste that was at you know Walmart distribution centers, Sprouts distribution centers, Target, all this corrugated waste in your home. I don't know about you, but my family is like Amazon addicted. So I have all these boxes every weekend that fortunately, I have a place to take them now. But I was going, man, there's got to be something we can do with it. So we felt if we could take that box, that the waste from that box, build a technology that can actually protect food, shelf stable for the same length of time that it is in plastic. You don't add anything to it that's harmful, that it breaks down to the planet. Ultimately, it's nature digestible. But if we could take that waste, it was going to be the best solution for the planet. So is that, so is that what I'm getting? Like when I buy Beyond Meat sausages and they come in that tray, is that former cardboard boxes? It's a percentage of former cardboard boxes, or it's the building blocks of a cardboard box, the same paper and materials. But by the end of this year, we'll targeting to be 60% a cardboard box. Okay. First, what's the cost difference between that? Like if I'm Ethan Brown, the CEO of Beyond Meat, and I'm saying, all right, Troy, you know, we like environmentally what you're doing, but compared to a plastic tray, is this going to cost us more or is it going to cost us the same? Well, when we went into our long-term contracts with customers, so we have about $580 million of annual revenue under contract for, you know, average length, six years. Those contracts generally were about a 20% premium to plastic. And it, keep in mind, you're talking about an eight cent part. So 20%, pretty small premium. But what we're seeing with inflation is that our raw materials costs haven't been in our, you know, input costs haven't really been as affected as much as plastic has. So what we're hearing in our cost models are showing is that we're at parity with plastic, if not probably a little cheaper, which probably is an opportunity for us to increase pricing here. Why is inflation causing plastic prices to increase, but not cardboard? Well, because we use a lot of recycled material, but our recycled material, or our, our input materials, if you will, is about 15% of our COGS. And so everything else is within our innovation window, right? So it's how much energy does it take us to process? How much labor does it take us to process? That's all within our, you know, what chemistries do we add? That's all within our innovation window. So we can control that. We can innovate and reduce costs through that. In the plastics industry, 55 to 65% of their cost is just pure resin. So just to harvest the plastic is just pure resin. So when you see fluctuations in resin pricing, you know, oil pricing going up, you see it has a much greater impact on the plastic piece part price than it does a footprint price. Interesting. Okay. So correct me if I'm wrong here, Troy, but so is a cardboard box biodegradable? Like when I get a cardboard box from Amazon and I put it in the recycling bin, could I also just put it in the compost bin? For the most part, keep in mind, I, there's a lot of boxes out there with a lot of pretty prints and finishes and things on it. But 
the vast majority of the cardboard box you get from Amazon is biodegradable and compostable. That's why we like that material a lot. And when you talk about produce boxes that you don't see, right? Those are in, in your sprouts and, and something. Those have a, a, a coating on them that makes it very difficult to recycle and biodegrade. And so your products, though, are not only biodegradable, but they will also hold up to things like microwaving. So how do you do that? Like, how do you make it such that it will biodegrade? Is it only biodegradable in industrial composting? Or if I bury it in my backyard, is it going to also biodegrade? It'll break down in industrial composting and it'll break down in your backyard as well. We actually believe the future of waste is a home appliance that you will you put, put your food waste in and your, your new material feedstock, you know, your new footprint material feedstock all together. It'll break down and actually be a nutrient for your garden or you could you know, sell it back into agriculture environments to farms as a, a nitrate and a nutrient, a fertilizer, right? So we believe that's the future of waste. Interesting. So, you know, if you think about like the mockery that came about for the compostable straws, right? Like people were putting them in their drinks and they were melting in the drinks and they're getting mangled and it became kind of like this meme. Obviously, you all don't have that problem. So what have you done that has enabled you to create something that actually works in both cold and heat that also is biodegradable? You're bringing up a great point, Paul. And that's where a lot of the value in the business comes up is, you know, how do you develop a technology that breaks down to earth, you know, within 90 days, but protects the food for potentially up to a year in a freezer? It takes a lot of engineering and science, right? So we actually have chemistries that actually are there just to help in the breakdown process. So once you put it in a microwave and or an oven, it'll help breaking it down. It's really just a lot of understanding how to refine fibers, control the fiber, form it, and then we have secondary coating. And we have patents around the entire process. When we started this business, we envisioned of just being the coating supplier, just a chemical company, a chemical company for good, right? But we found that controlling the entire ecosystem and the refining the fibers and forming the fibers was critical to the overall value proposition we were providing to our customer. So we, you know, like Intel, control the whole ecosystem. Well, that's really interesting. So you all now, uh, from what I read, you have 1,200 employees. You got facilities both in the U.S. and Mexico. You just anticipated you have over half a billion dollars in revenue. So what was that journey like for you? I mean, you started out with a few guys who were basically thinking they're going to create a B2B chemicals company. Now you're running an empire that most entrepreneurs would only dream of being able to run. You're talking about going public with reportedly a valuation of $1.6 billion. So apparently 3x your revenue there. What has this been like for you as an entrepreneur to see this growth and to manage it and to go from being an inventor to a manager? Yeah, real quick, we're at 50 million in revenue. Uh, we have- Did I miss here? What was the 580? We're 580 million revenue under contract. So you can see we're chasing this massive demand, right? Okay, got it. Sorry, under contract over a multi-year period, I see. And that continues to grow every month as we execute our development cycle with customers. But so I think I go back to your question is, you know, how do we look? And frankly, I think the data is probably old on the website too. I think we have close to 4,000 employees. We have a, a factory or a R&D solution center in the Netherlands now. Uh, we have a team in, in the same solution center in China. And we're building another factory in Poland. We have 1.5 million square foot factory in Mexicali, Mexico. And we have a factory in South Carolina and Arizona. So it's interesting is we don't ever, you know, my business partner and I had this discussion the other day. Somebody asked us and said, hey, do you ever kind of stop and smell the roses? And, you know, it's really hard. And Paul, you know this, and you're, as you talk to entrepreneurs, 
we almost always only see the work that's ahead. So we never really have stopped and said, wow, we have 4,000 employees or, or wow, we have $500 million you know, dollars annual revenue under contract. We only see what we need to do the next 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. It's hard for us to stop and go, wow, look what we've accomplished. You know, maybe in five years, I, you know, I'm hoping that we'll, we'll do that. But I mean, we love it. I mean, I, I am so, I think I'm so proud of our customers. You know, we, we support ConAgra, McDonald's, Sweet Greens, Beyond Meat, just about every major CPG on the planet. And every single one of these companies, now they're resourced differently and they have different innovation teams, but they all want to change and do the right thing. The business gets such a bad name. I don't see any customer that doesn't want to do the right thing. It's, they need a better supplier. That's what Footprint's all about, being a better supplier. Why aren't there other competitors? You're saying you're selling to nearly every CPG, McDonald's and ConAgra and all these others. Is it just that your patents give you the moat? Or do you have some other advantage that you are first to market? You have the most scale, so the cheapest prices. Like, Who are your competitors and why haven't they captured more of your market share? Well, I think you said it all, right? We're first to market, so we got a significant lead there. We have a very unique, you would have, we have a team of semiconductor scientists that have a very unique approach to solving the problem and have very unique skill sets. And, you know, frankly, millions of dollars of R&D and time invested in solving this problem. So we're first to market. We have a very unique technology team, very diversified, interdisciplinary technology team, very similar to a 3M approach in their directed innovation model. In fact, if in the key takeaway from this call, Paul, I want you to think that if you're thinking about what is Footprint or who is Footprint, I'd, I'd say that we're very much like a 3M focused on doing good for the planet, which I think, frankly, is going to be the future of business, right? It's going to be pro-business, pro-planet. And that's who Footprint is. Very unique interdisciplinary skill sets that have been focused on this problem for a very long time. So a very unique lead today. And we're paranoid, you know, coming from Intel, we're paranoid. So we, we IP the crud out of everything. <laughs> Understood. A smart strategy for sure. So I just want to ask you, I read that you all have these six-pack rings for soda and for beer that biodegrade in a mere 12 hours once they are in salt water, which is pretty impressive since I know that there's obviously been a lot of concern about these uh, six-pack plastic rings going into waterways and so on. Uh, So has that been picked up by the market? I imagine it must be really cheap to make a six-pack ring out of plastic. So is that something where there's a greater cost disparity between your product and the conventional product? Yeah, we're actually fairly competitive price-wise. Where we need to solve and we're working to solve for a massive adoption is application. So today, the high cone rings are applied on a roll, right? So very quickly applied, they come rolled up. So our technology today, you can't roll. But by the end of this year, we'll have a, a technology that will roll up and you could apply it very similarly as the rings today. And then at that point, it becomes very, very cost competitive. And it won't work in freshwater, though. If the thing goes into a river, it, it will not degrade until it hits an ocean. Oh, no, it'll degrade in a river, too. It'll just take longer. The salt water in an ocean and agitation in an ocean, it just accelerates the breakdown of the part. I see. But we don't want it to break in freshwater too quickly because we want you to put your six-pack six rings into a cool cooler, a footprint cooler, fold with ice and, and water. And we want it to be able to hold at least for you know, quite some time. Again, everything's a balance, right? The balance of performance and planet. Got it. Okay. So you all are apparently getting ready to go public now, right? And uh, uh, reportedly, this is a valuation of $1.6 billion. So when can we expect your IPO? You know, we're filing all our documents this month. 
and it's really up to the SEC then. We anticipate it's probably going to be around May. May of 2022. Cool. Uh, well, I look forward to seeing how you perform. I know a lot of companies uh, right now um, in 2021, two-thirds of the companies that IPO'd by the end of the year were trading under their initial offering price. It was a really bad year for the performance of new IPO'd companies. So I hope that you're able to break that trend there. Yeah, you know, one of the things when we looked at, Paul, on this is in our approach, this is we became really, really conservative on our financial projections. So what we're projecting to the market and our growth rate is in some cases draconian to what we think we'll do or in some cases actually doing. So I think that we saw that and we saw a lot of it was there were a lot of SPAC sponsors and there weren't a lot of really good businesses to take public. And so one, we got a really great sponsor and we're, we're a real business. When we're selling hundreds of millions of units, we have 50 million in revenue. It's not one of those things where we're going to say, hey, in the future, we're going to have revenue or in the future, we're going to have these products. Our products are in virtually in every supermarket in the country today. You know, for us, it's just an expansion story. And, and we were very, very conservative on that, certainly with this current environment and COVID on, on how fast did we commit to expanding versus how fast we think we can. So I think what you'll see or, we're, you know, we anticipate is by this summer, you'll be talking to me and then, you know, I'll be able to tell you, you know, how we really think we're going to do, which is, you know, hopefully far greater than what we're anticipating, what we've con- committed to, if you will. Fingers crossed. That would be great. So how much money has the company raised since inception to date now? Uh, if you count through the SPAC process, about $1.2 billion. Okay. And if you don't count the, the SPAC process? Uh, about $400 million. So essentially, your earlier investors are looking at like a 3x return or even a 4x return for some of them, I'm sure. Correct. Yeah, hopefully they, they, write, they hang on for a little bit. I, you know, I think we really strike a nerve in the marketplace. and We get a lot of exceptional cheerleaders, if you will, and, and consumers and customers that reach out to us all the time and say, thank you for what you do. And so I think the story will resonate with folks and what we're doing. And you know, again, we're focused on transforming the supermarket. So you can see the results of our innovation every day. Or if you, if you like sweet greens, you can go to sweet greens and see it or in, in McDonald's and, and some other customers as well. But you'll see the transformation of the supermarket and Footprint is leading that. Well, I can assure you that I do like sweet green. In fact, uh, I, I was actually commenting just the other day, I, I live in Sacramento, California, but I used to live in DC. And so I would go to sweet green quite often. And I'm sad that we don't have a sweet green here. Oh, yeah. Same here. I'm in Arizona and I don't have one. I, and they're one of my favorite customers as people. Just their vision, their culture. Their values are so clear. They wear them on their sleeve and we're just, just great humans, just absolutely great humans. So I think their success is warranted. It's just what a great business. Yeah, it really is. And it was like one of those places where I would go and I would always get the same thing. They have like a shroomami bowl where it's like basically mushrooms and grains and so on. It's like really awesome. I loved it. So let me ask you about the broader picture, Troy. Going back to, let's say, Beyond Meat, if you look at the problem that they're trying to solve, Animal agriculture is a leading driver of deforestation and climate change and so many other problems. And they are trying to solve this by offering something that is a better alternative than meat. And they've had a lot of success as a company, a very successful IPO. But the broader picture is that meat consumption is still going up. And that plant-based meat on a volume basis is still less than 1% of the total meat market in the US and even less globally speaking. And you just see per capita meat demand going up in China, going up in India, going up in Brazil, all the places where it's going to matter the most. Per capita meat consumption is going up despite the popularity of companies like Beyond and Impossible Foods and others. Something to me seems similar in plastic. Plastic demand is going up, not down. And your company has had great success. And so it's a wonderful success story for your business. But what is it going to take 
to actually start seeing plastic go down, that the pounds of plastic that humanity is producing will actually decrease. Like your company will have to grow so exponentially. You'll probably need numerous competitors of yours to grow so exponentially. I'm just wondering, like, when do you predict that that might happen, that we could actually see reductions in the amount of plastic that humanity is creating? You know, I'm not for sure if I have a, it's time-based, but you're absolutely right. And especially with COVID, I think COVID in everybody buying more from the supermarket and more takeout containers and you're seeing more and more plastic used and, and accelerated, short-term accelerated growth. The good news is everybody wants out of it. So I think your point on competition, I actually ask, get asked this question all the time on competition. And my answer is probably surprising, but I actually think somebody that has a similar technology to Footprint will actually help us. We're talking about a $400 billion, $500 billion market. One guy coming in, two guys, five guys, 10 guys is going to help versus hurt. And right now, Footprint's way ahead. But we need others for sure. And I think the way we're going to accelerate is partnerships. As we get into Southeast Asia, India, Brazil, we're going to develop solution centers there, but have manufacturing partners so that we can get to these regions quicker. Our multinational customers need support everywhere. They don't need support just in North America and Europe. They need support everywhere. So we plan to support them. But to accelerate that support globally, accelerate our revenues and our margins, I think you're going to see us do that with some sort of joint venture around manufacturing. Footprint will license our technology and our coatings, have solution centers in the area, working with our customers, support them in that unique geography. But that's one way. We're going to have to have some strong competition. Aluminum short term is being used as a solution. I'm not a fan of aluminum because just pure CO2 emissions compared to any alternative. It's massively high energy use and bauxite mining is terrible for the planet. But you know, you're going to see alternatives like aluminum glass, those kind of things being used. And I think another one, I'm not a huge fan of governments getting in the way of business and telling them what to do. But I think there needs to be the appropriate tax on the end of life of plastic, right? It doesn't get recycled. They're trying to use this word recyclable to make you feel guilty and all that stuff. But it doesn't get recycled. There's not enough value for it. Plus, it's contaminating your food. There should be the appropriate tax for the end of life and storage of it short term. And I think you'll see that'll accelerate alternatives. Well, that would be quite nice to see. We've experimented with lots of taxes on gas, on all types of things, luxury vehicles, gas tax, alcohol tax, tobacco tax. Maybe one day there will be a plastic tax, who knows? And speaking of taxes, you know, there's people obviously who are arguing for a carbon tax. One of the things that I've been intrigued by is that there's a huge amount of effort to try to figure out how to put less carbon into the atmosphere. However, even if we stopped emitting today, if we went down to zero emissions, there's still too much. We still have to remove some of the carbon from the atmosphere that we've put in there. So there's a lot of effort now going into from some startups to figure out direct capture of carbon and carbon removal from the atmosphere. Is the same true with plastic that even if we stopped producing any plastic today, if we went down to zero pounds per year, there's still so much plastic out there that we need to figure out ways to degrade it, like either with some type of a chemical company or, or some enzyme that we can figure out. I know there are some plastic eating fungi out there. What is your thought on finding ways to degrade plastic that has already been created? Yeah, I don't think it's plastic's not releasing a ton of methane when it breaks down. So that's a positive thing. But one way we believe in, in footprint may play in this space as well is that there's hydrogen and carbon locked up in plastic that's not recyclable, right? So if you can efficiently put a factory with 
you know, maybe with the alternative energy sources and efficiently unlock through heat, unlock the hydrogen and carbon that's in there. And you could use that carbon to make things like graphene and things that support EV batteries, et cetera. That's a real opportunity. I think that's a real unique opportunity and probably the, the greatest value for the planet. Now, we're going to have to figure out how to do that, heat up the plastic and do it in the most efficient way. But there's real value in that hydrogen carbon that's captured. I hear you on that. That would be quite a win-win. And I wasn't suggesting that all the plastic that's polluting the planet is emitting carbon as much as it is just polluting and creating a danger for wildlife. And it'll be there for centuries, maybe even millennia. And that's quite a legacy for us to leave. And there's got to be organisms that can consume it. Well, yeah, I mean, I just my experience alone in, in my business partner, I talked about this is, you know, we were for work at Intel, we used to go to Malaysia quite a bit. And we'd go to Indonesia and Bali and on the weekends and stuff. And we had time off. We recently went there three years ago, two, three years ago, prior to COVID. And I had to explain to my kids what the ocean used to look like, what it used to look like there before all the plastic pollution was there. And We've talked about this over and over again, just about all the different places my business partner I've been in the 90s versus now going, it's heartbreaking. And the good news is everybody's focused on it, Paul. I thank you for highlighting it today and giving me the opportunity to stand on this platform and and talk about the issue. But the good news is people want to change. The number one thing that drives change the fastest is when you're in the supermarket and you have a choice between a technology that's in plastic or a technology that's in a plant-based solution. Buy the one that's in the plant-based solution. It's the fastest way to drive change. Once our customers see that the consumer is responding to it, you'll see a mass market adoption and acceleration of the technology. That's very cool. And so just to be clear, if I take one of your footprint products, let's say the Beyond Meat tray, and I just put it in my recycling bin, like I don't have to compost it. I can put it in the recycling bin and it'll be recycled. Is that true? The Beyond Meat tray, yeah, will go back as as a box. Now, keep in mind, again, the focus shouldn't be on that. That's a plastic term. They want you to focus on recyclability. And regardless of the cost of the planet, let's talk about recyclability. That's, therefore, you get things like aluminum, you know, going to be an energy crisis, right? You know, and a CO2 emission crisis. We want to focus on the, the full thing. Is it nature digestible? Is it, what is the CO2 emissions to produce it? Because again, the real recyclable, if I take my customer's waste, and it's the last life. It, it's a leaf that falls off a tree, if you will. And I reuse it. That fiber quality could be so poor that no one wants to use it again. The best solution for that is to, to dissolve back into the planet. But, but let's say, Troy, I'm, I'm living in an apartment in a city. I have two options. I can either, well, I can throw it in the street, I guess, but I have two legal options. Throw it in the trash or throw it in the recycling. Or maybe it's a city that has a composting program. But if those are my only options and I put it in the recycling bin, what happens? It would go back into a box again. Again, with food waste, we recommend that you clean it out, right? So, and then it'll be a box again. But we really, Jen, because of food waste, when it gets food contamination, we don't control if it gets recycled. So, a footprint, I think what you're going to see, Paul, the future of waste is these, everybody's going to have a home appliance that you'll just put in this home appliance. It's going to dehydrate it. It's going to break it down into a little powder with your food waste in this material. And then that's actually a nutrient back into the earth. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've actually seen ads for those type of things before. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So before we reach uh, the end here, I, I do have to ask you, we are shortly coming up on the Super Bowl. And apparently, there is some connection between footprint and the Super Bowl. So tell us, right, what is it? 
Well, I don't know if I can give it away yet, but we have a partner in the stadiums, multiple stadiums. I know, I think you know that we're, we're a sponsor of the Phoenix Suns and, and the naming rights of the Footprint Center. Uh, we've been using that as an incubator to test technologies and get people's opinions on mouthfeel and making sure our utensils work and those kind of things or water bottles, et cetera. We hope to have our technologies at the Super Bowl as well, replacing traditional plastic technologies. That'll be exciting. I'll be looking forward to it. Uh, thank you. So, Troy, let me ask you, you've had quite a wild ride here. You've gone from having an idea to quitting your job, starting a company, raising millions and millions of dollars, creating a company that now has thousands of employees, tens of millions of dollars in revenue, and is about to go public. This, it's such a tiny little portion of people who have an idea ever go through all of those steps that I just enumerated that you've been through. Have there been any resources that would be useful for you? If there's somebody listening, you're saying, man, this Troy dude sounds like a really awesome guy. I really admire what he's accomplished. I'd like to try to do something similar. Are there any resources that you would suggest that have been helpful for you along your own journey? Yeah, for sure. I think people around you every day, anybody that's an entrepreneur that's done it. And my example is, you know, Kevin Eastler was the founder of Sprouts and him and his, his partner were the founders of Sprouts. So he shared a lot of experiences and, and often we stepped in potholes that he stepped in before and immediately goes, oh yeah, I've done that as well, right? And there's people around you that is definitely a resource that if you've seen them, have done what you want to do, ask them questions, be around them, be open to learning. I think, of course, I'm a phenomenal reader. I can't stop reading. I'm afraid of what I don't know. So there's really good books for me. You know, Scale or Fail was a great book. Uh, good Strategy, Bad Strategy was an excellent book. I liked Big Potential. You know, I think that's just Sean Acker. Those are all just off the top of my head, but I wouldn't stop reading. There's so much stuff. I mean, reading Obama's book, I think, inspired me quite a bit and things on leadership. I think, again, number one, if you're going to take this journey, you have to be 100% sold on the journey. If you have a plan B, you can guarantee you will be in your plan B. It's got to be there's plan A and it's plan A, B, and C, D, E, and F. It's all that plan. If you have a backup plan, if your entrepreneurial strategy fails, you're going to fail. You got to be all in. Because if you have one foot or even a pinky toe out the door, you're not going to succeed. Understood. So final question for you here, Troy. So you are somebody who has been really driven to succeed, as you're just mentioning. You're totally booked up doing Footprint. I'm sure, though, that you've thought about other companies that you wish would exist that you just don't have the time or the bandwidth to do. So if there's somebody out there thinking that they would like to start their own company to do something good for the world, what do you think it should be? Well, I, th I think there's a number of things. I, again, I think the future of the planet and the future of businesses are, are businesses that are supporting the planet. So there's food businesses around. How do we... Baruka's Nuts is an example, Darren Oline's company, where they're actually harvesting you know, Baruka's Nuts that actually protect the rainforest, that's great for the planet. It's a great food, good for you. Technologies around that. I'm an advocate and a nut about nuclear energy. So, you know, I think that's going to have to be done in the private sector. I know that's a big, that's probably not an entrepreneurial journey, but... Some of these nuclear fusion startups have raised hundreds of millions of dollars lately. I'm 100% supportive. Those are two areas that I'm, for lack of a better term, I get geeked about. I'm looking forward to those technologies. What I mentioned to you earlier, and, and Footprint may play in some of these spaces as well, is how do we unlock the value in plastic, you know, that's been thrown out for trash? I think there's true value in that. And how do you do it efficiently and, and positive for the planet? Footprint's developing technologies today in our factories to reduce our energy, to capture some of our energy that, you know, recapture and reuse some of our energy through our ovens. 
I think there's a lot of exciting work in that space as well. Well, you may want to check out just Google plastic eating fungi. It's pretty amazing to see that there are actually uh, many species of fungi that have been shown to consume plastic. And there may be, a, there may be uh, some pathway for you and all of your smart former Intel people who uh, want to go check that out and see if there's a, a commercialization strategy for that. Because when presumably, I don't know this for a fact, but presumably it's like some enzyme that the, those fungi are producing. And so maybe you can synthesize that and, and apply it in an industrial way. Anyway, Troy, I, my hat's off to you. I really appreciate all that you're doing to try to reduce humanity's footprint on the planet here. And I really admire the success that you're having. So good luck with the Super Bowl. Good luck with the IPO. And I look forward to following your journey. There are many resources that you may, named in here. We're going to list them all on the website, businessforgoodpodcast.com on this episode page. So you can go there and check it out if you don't remember all the things that Troy was recommending, books and otherwise. So Go to the website, check it out. And Troy, thanks again. We're really looking forward to continuing to root for your success. Thank you so much, Paul. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.